Today we are going over the book of Jonah. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm used to teaching the high school students, so I'm gonna make you guys do more work than Adam normally makes you do. So grab your Bible out and have it with you because you're gonna need it. Uh, and I am gonna follow him in recommending a book to you. Uh, this is a method of prayer by Matthew Henry. So. Uh, you're probably familiar with Matthew Henry, right? He wrote the one commentary on the Bible that every family has gotten a hold of or heard. Uh, it's a giant one volume if you have the one that I had, but the writing's so small in it you can't see it. Um, so Matthew Henry was a Puritan. Uh, he wrote a lot on all the scriptures. He's also a pastor. Uh, and he noticed that people in his church were prayerless. And when they prayed, their prayers were anemic. Uh, he was also dealing at a time when a lot of people were using form prayers, right? You, those still happen today where people pray the same thing over and over. And even if you're a good Protestant and you don't think you use form prayers, maybe you're like me and you find that your prayers every night before dinner are covering the same four or five topics. Maybe you find your prayers at night with your kids are covering the same four or five things. You notice when your kids pray, they're praying the same four or five things. Uh, you realize that your prayers uh, don't match the prayers in Scripture. They aren't girded with power uh, the way, and maybe you don't see answers coming to your prayers. And God has promised us that he hears our prayers, that he's eager to answer them when we pray. And so Matthew Henry wrote a book called A Method for Prayer, uh, where he goes through all of the different scriptural passages on prayer. Talks about what they're praying for and how they're praying for. So you go to the end of the chapter and he just walks you through point after point after point. Pray for this, pray in this way. You pray for this, you pray in this way. You pray for this, you pray in this way. And then he gives you a massive scriptural index for all those. So you can just see, oh, the Lord is asking us to pray for those in authority. And then there are 72 different scriptures uh, where you can go and see prayers of people in the Bible praying for those who are in authority over this. So if you notice that your prayers are repetitive, if you notice that your prayers are anemic, if you recognize that the Lord works through prayer, but you don't see him working through your prayers, uh, a method of prayer is a little hard to get through. It's written a while ago. Uh, but it is fantastically powerful in changing who and what you're praying for and making you pray biblically. So I'd highly recommend it. I'm going to pass it around as we go. Uh, I brought up the whiteboard, but that is just for show. If I wrote on it, you would not be able to read my writing. So uh, it's really not very important. But it is here just so you knew we were starting. Uh, we are in the book of Jonah. Uh, Adam jumped ahead last week uh, and got through Micah and Nahum. Uh, but we are going back to Jonah. So the who, what, why of Jonah. Uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. Uh, I'm going to make an uh, assumption that it was Jonah himself, uh, but scriptures doesn't tell us that. Uh, church history uh, tends to indicate that it was Jonah, but it's pretty darn loose. Uh, so we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. Uh, we also don't know exactly when the book of Jonah was written. 
Um, if you don't know the author, it's hard to know what time he lived. Uh, we do know the time period that the book of Jonah took place in. Uh, so Jonah was a prophet to northern Israel. Uh, he was a prophet to northern Israel in the, uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II. So jump in your Bibles to 2 Kings 14. So if you know the history of Israel, you know that uh, the kingdom that was combined over all of Israel under David and Solomon uh, broke apart at the death of Solomon. Uh, Rehoboam, his son, started reigning in Judah, and all of Israel went after Jeroboam the first. Now Jeroboam and all the kings after him in northern Israel were wicked, Uh, but Jonah had the calling to go to Jeroboam II, who came much later, um, talking 750 to 780 uh, BC. And he was called to go to this wicked nation with a wicked king, but they were still the people of God. And so Jonah went, and we can read. Uh, can someone actually read for me? You have to read out loud if you want the mic to pick it up. Uh, how about verses 23 through 27? This is 2 Kings 14. You got it. 23 through 27. You got it. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamaniah, Hamath, to the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servants, Jonah, servant Jonah, the son of Amittiah, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no help for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Jonah. Okay, you can jump back to Jonah. Um, So here's what you have going on. You have the nation of Israel, and they are a wicked nation. And they have a wicked king. And it's even worse because at the time when they have this wicked king, Jeroboam II, Jonah is sent there to promise blessings to this wicked nation. And it's even starker contrast because while Israel, the northern tribes, had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, the southern tribes had this back and forth where they'd have good king, wicked king, good king, wicked king, good king, wicked king. And Jonah is here in the midst of Jeroboam the second reign, who is a wicked king in the north, a particularly wicked king. And they have Amaziah in the south, who is a righteous king, who's obeying. And Jonah is a prosperity gospel preacher, (laughs) a righteous one. He is told by God to go and promise blessing 
to the northern kingdom. And this should stick out as a surprise, right? If your kingdom is wicked and your king is wicked, you shouldn't expect the blessings coming from God. But God is gracious and merciful and gentle. And so he goes, he sends Jonah to this wicked nation with a a wicked king and tells him he's going to bless them. And he's going to expand their borders back to where they were before they had been slowly encroached upon. Uh, And lo and behold, this makes Jonah a popular guy, right, in the north. You get get to preach that everyone's going to be blessed. It goes well with you. And so that's, that's the background of what we know on Jonah. And now he gets another call. Verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As we work into the book of Jonah, um, I want to give you an outline. Outline super simple. Jonah is four chapters. Chapter one is Jonah and the pagans. Chapter two is Jonah praying. Chapter three is Jonah and the pagans. Chapter four is Jonah praying. So you want an outline for Jonah? You got pagan, prayer, pagan, prayer. Simplest outline you'll ever have. Um, And let's talk a little bit about the themes in Jonah. Uh, Themes of Jonah, like all the minor prophets, are judgment. Um, Judgment is going to, it's declared here against Nineveh. Um, And so judgment is a theme throughout the book of Jonah. The character of God is a theme throughout the book of Jonah. Uh, Turn in the book of Jonah to Jonah chapter 4 because it says it. Clearly here, uh, Jonah is describing who God is. And he says, I knew, this is uh, 4-2. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The character of God is on display throughout this book. Um. And the third theme of Jonah is covenantal solidarity. So uh, in the book of Jonah, God deals with people as covenantal groups, and he shows uh, how the actions of one affect others and how our actions are intertwined. Um, So Jonah, in chapter 1, gets the call to go to Nineveh. And Joseph, like a good, Jonah, like a good, faithful prophet of God, is eager to follow after the Lord's commands, right? No, uh, not even remotely. Uh, this book it actually has a literary theme uh, that rings well today. This book is incredibly ironic. Uh, I will point out to you uh, as we go through it some of the irony here, but it is just rife on every page. Um, but the start of it is Jonah, this prophet of God who has been faithfully called before and gone and executed what God has told him is called to Nineveh. And when the call comes and when we hear about it, right, this call says, God says, for their evil has come up before me. 
Well, if, you, if you've read your Bible, you're familiar with that phrase, right? We've heard of other times where the evil of a particular nation has come up before me. That's what God said when he met with Abraham, when he was on the way to Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, their evil has come up before me, right? So this, this is leading us, the hearer, to think of God is ready to bring destruction down upon Nineveh. Uh, and Nineveh was renowned in the ancient world, and the Assyrians, the people in Nineveh, were renowned in the ancient world for being explicitly evil. Uh, if you listen to modern podcasts on it, Don Carlin has one uh, in Hardcore History where he talks about the Assyrians, and he just goes into detail about the atrocious ways that they killed and destroyed and sacked and pillaged and they were renowned throughout the uh, ancient Near East for being a vile people, right? So not only that, but they're on the northern part of Israel and their territory is expanding and it'll be a hundred years from now before uh, they come in and they wipe out. The Assyrians are actually what end up wiping out uh, uh, northern Israel but but that's on the horizon, right? They are the, the big, evil, ugly power. And here you have Israel, who Jonah knows is being blessed by God because he was told to bless him. But he knows that the people aren't responding, right? Israel is God's covenant people, and God has given them blessings. But Jonah sees the evilness, and the vileness of Israel. And he sees the evilness and the vileness of Jeroboam II. Yet God has been merciful. And now here Jonah is called to go to maybe the only group who is more evil and vile than northern Israel. And he's called to give them a message of destruction And in the back of his mind, Jonah has to know God was merciful to Israel even when they didn't repent. Is God going to be merciful to Nineveh when they don't repent? Right? This question comes up before him, and Jonah doesn't want to let it get there. So Jonah decides to flee from Tarshish, and it says, from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa. He jumps on a boat and he goes to Tarshish. Uh, So imagine you're on the East Coast, right? And you are in Boston. And you are called to go up to Maine, right? It's a journey. It's a long journey, especially if you're walking there or riding. If God calls you to go from Boston to Maine and you decide to hop on a boat and head to San Francisco around the point, This is what Jonah's doing. If Israel is here and Nineveh's up here, Tarshish, we don't know exactly where it is, but Tarshish is like Spain or Gibraltar. It is the edge of the known world. It is Nineveh's north. Tarshish is like way, way, way west and south. So Jonah is going pit opposite of where God has called him. And so what happens? Well, the Lord uh, isn't bothered by 
Jonah's disobedience in such a way that he can't overcome it. Uh, the Lord throws a tempest. Giant uh, sea t- or a giant storm takes over. And so Jonah is at rest in the bottom of the boat. Right? He's sleeping easy. And meanwhile, you have the pagans, right? The pagans are, they make their living at sea. They make their li- living delivering goods. The pagans are throwing the goods into the sea, right? Th- this is not a small storm. This isn't like, oh, it got a little windy. These are men who live at sea and they're terrified. And so they throw everything over. That doesn't work. So then they start crying out to go- their gods. They all begin praying. They tell everyone to pray. Uh, they tell Jonah to pray. Bible doesn't indicate that Jonah prayed. Bible indicates that all these other pagans are praying. Then it gets worse. So what do they do? They go and find Jonah. They find him asleep. They wake him up. They go, what are you doing? They've casted lots, right? Bible tells us that we may cast lots, but the roll of the dice is in the Lord's hands. So the Lord has used these pagans who have first called out to all their gods and sought for mercy and thought for the God to calm it and hasn't worked. And now they've cast lots. Lots come down to Jonah. And so their question to Jonah is, who are you? Who's your God? What do you do? So Jonah says, oh, well, I'm a prophet. Perfect. This guy who speaks to God. He then says, I'm a prophet who serves God of the heavens, the land, and the sea. Oh, you mean the sea that we're on, you mean the land that we need to get to, and you mean the heavens where the moon and the waves and the wind and all of this destruction comes from? You're, you're, you're that, you're, you serve that God? Yeah, I, I serve the God who is in control of every single one of our current problems. And the people say, well, well, Jonah, you serve this God. What should we do? And Jonah tells him, cast me into the sea. All right, so the sea he's telling him to cast him into, right? This, this sounds on the face of it like Jonah is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of these people. But that, that's not what's going on. Jonah is in stark rebellion to the Lord. And what Jonah's saying is, I would rather die than do what God wants me to do. Jonah is in the heart of his rebellion. And so the pagans say, we don't want your blood on our hands. They're going to start to row. They're going to do everything in their power to get themselves to safety. Now, Jonah could have said, I'm abandoning God and abandoning his call. I need to repent. I need to turn. Take us back north. Maybe, maybe get me as close to Nineveh as you can. I'll go do what God said. And the storm would have been calmed. But Jonah doesn't. He says, kill me. Throw me into the sea. I'd rather die than serve God. So the pagans don't want his blood on their hands. They try and roll back. That's not working. You, you can't thwart God with your own attempts. Um, and so the, peop- the pagans feel guilty. And they don't want his blood on their hands. And so before they do the deed, they ask God would forgive them for it. And they then follow after what God has commanded. They throw Jonah into the sea. 
and the seas are calmed. And now these sailors, these pagan sailors, who were afraid beforehand at the seas, the texts tell us that they are very afraid. They are exceedingly afraid. Why are the pagans exceedingly afraid? They've seen the power of the one true God. And the text tells us um, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. So, so what's the irony here? Jonah, the prophet of God, is running away from God and acting irreverently and failing to pray and not seeking after the good of others. He'd rather die than follow after God. And what do the pagans do? The pagans are crying out to God. The pagans are making vows to God. The pagans are led to worship God in the midst of Jonah's sins and failures. And so, chapter one, pagans. Jonah interacting with pagans. It's ironic because the pagans are righteous and Jonah is not. Chapter two starts. But notice, uh, I'm covenantal solidarity. The whole boat is hosed. All these pagans are going to die for the actions of the one man, right? They are together, a group, a bond. They all get the same fate. None, none of those pagans were guilty of running away from God in the way Jonah was. Uh, covenantal solidarity, they're combined. So Jonah, who has just said, I'd rather die than serve you, gets his chance. He gets dumped into uh, the ocean. And the end of chapter one says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Mm -hmm. Chapter two, prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And here you have Jonah's prayer. And Jonah's prayer effectively says, uh, I was thrown into the ocean. He describes it as the belly of the great deep. He describes the terrors of being caught in the ocean. He describes uh, the terrors of stuff grabbing at his ankles and feeling it. And uh, in there, the waves and the billows were passing over him. He was driven away from the sight of the Lord. So the terror of being near death moves Jonah from simply describing the terrors of being in the stormy sea, going down into the bowels of the earth, to terror at being driven away from God. Right? He, he comes to realize in the belly of this fish that what's awful about death isn't a ceasing to be. What's also awful about death, true death, is no longer being in the presence of God's love. Um, and so Jonah cries out. And he recognizes he won't see God in his temple. He won't see God in righteousness. He realizes... Uh, he realizes that he will be forever separated from his Lord. And so he, like the pagans, makes vows to God. He promises that he will pay them. Uh, the Lord hears him. 
from the midst of the belly of the fish, right, this perfect picture of what death is swallowed up in the stomach of a giant fish. Um, and the Lord causes the fish to vomit Jonah out on the land. Uh, we don't expect in normal parlance uh, giant fishes to swallow men. Uh, this has led, and other parts of the story have led people to question whether or not Jonah is a true story or whether Jonah is an allegory. Um, the scriptures reflect upon Jonah as a narrative and as a story when it's originally given. Jonah, we saw, is a real person. It really happened, right? This isn't some made-up guy. It gives the beginning of the book. It gives Jonah. It gives the name of his father. We learn in Second Kings that not only who Jonah was and that he was a prophet, we learn where he was born and where he was from. So this is a real person at a real time in a real situation. Uh, and then we see uh, Jesus quote him. Right? So it's not just this one story at this one time. If you jump in your Bibles to Matthew 12. Verse 39 through 41. So the people here are, I'm going to start in 38. Uh, it says, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered that, right, this is just after he's done sign after sign after sign after sign in the book of Matthew. Uh, and the people are always asking for another sign. They've failed to believe any of the signs and they've failed to believe his words. So the scribes come and the Pharisees come and they ask for a sign and he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Uh, our Lord describes what happened to Jonah. He describes the hard parts of the story for us to hear and take in and understand in our modern parlance, right? He says he was three days and nights in the belly of the fish. He then uses that as a sign that he himself will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then he says, not only was that part of the story true, but the people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, right? So Jonah was really swallowed. Jonah really preached to the Ninevites. The, pe the spoiler, the Ninevites truly repented. And that generation of evil Assyrians is going to rise up and is going to condemn you, the current hearers that Jesus is speaking about, who don't believe one who is far greater than Jonah. So uh, if you were thinking this story was an allegory, you have to do battle with our Lord Jesus on the topic. Um, so end of chapter one was pagans. Chapter two was Jonah's prayer. And it ends with the Lord having the fish vomit up Jonah onto the dry land. So if you're Jonah and you have been fleeing from the presence of the Lord, 
Your wickedness has been on display in contrast to the righteousness of the pagans who were on the ship. Where do you go from here? Right? Do you have the honor of being a prophet of the Lord? Do you have an, the honor of going and preaching the gospel and preaching God's, in this case, condemnation to Nineveh? Right? You're stuck. You don't know. You, you're, you've been defiled. You are as defiled as you can be. You've been in the belly of a fish. He, the Levites weren't allowed to touch dead meat. Do you think they would have been clean having come out of the body of an unclean animal? Uh, fish probably wasn't actually unclean. Uh, but nonetheless, Jonah's stuck. Chapter 3 opens up. Uh, we're going to go back to the pagans here. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Nineveh, the Bible says here, is an exceedingly great city, three days journey. And we don't, we don't actually know if that means it would take three days to walk across, right? Who, whose speed are you walking? We don't know. Some people talk about uh, there were cities where it takes three days to get an audience in the court system, an audience to the kings, right? If, you're a, if you go to a small town, you walk in the gates, you see all the elders standing in the gates, you can immediately have an audience with everyone of import there in a great city. It would take multiple days and go through multiple processes to get an audience with the king. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what the case is, but any way you cut it, Nineveh is a giant city. Uh, and so what's the message that Jonah is told to tell to Nineveh? Uh, in the Hebrew, it's five words. In English, it's a couple more. It's yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is a pretty simple sermon. <laughs> He proclaims destruction down upon the city. It says he goes in one day's journey into the way and he starts calling out its destruction. Um, well, what happens? What, what happens to the people in Nineveh? What do they do? Well, this is an ironic story. The pagans from this evil city repent. The people start to put on sackcloth. You know what sackcloth is? Sackcloth is like the hide of a goat. It's an unfinished goat hide. And you don't wear it like the nice leather way in and hair on the outside. You turn it around backwards. And you wear the nasty, pokey goat hair inside. So th this is, you hear sackcloth in there. It's incredibly uncomfortable. Every time you move, you get poked everywhere, all over you, all over your body, right? Sackcloth is something you put on, not just to show other people that you're having a bad day, but you put it on because it purposely makes you miserable, right? They are attempting to show in their outward actions and in their dress that they deserve this punishment. They deserve to be miserable, because the destruction is coming and they know they deserve it. And it says, they called for a fast. The people called for a fast from the greatest of them to the least. And so this is 
just revival breaking out in the city. And it starts with repentance. And the word moves from the revival of the people from the lowest to the greatest. And the word gets to the king. And so the king comes down from his throne. He takes off his garb. And the king himself puts on sackcloth. And it doesn't stop there. This is where you see this covenantal aspect of it again. So the king issues a proclamation and he published it throughout all of Nineveh. And the decree goes from the king and his nobles. And listen to this. He says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink on water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The animals are repenting. This gets down to everyone, right? If the animals themselves are called to fast and repent, right? The animals will be destroyed if Nineveh gets destroyed. There's covenantal solidarity there. What the king does, the people do, the animals do. Everyone's tied together. And uh, Jonah, who turns out to be the most effective preacher in the history of the church... Preaching a message of condemnation and destruction is livid. Now, now think about where Jonah is. He has preached prosperity to his own people in northern Israel. And he has seen them lavished with the loving kindness, gentleness, and mercy of God. And he has seen... Their refusal to repent. And now Jonah has gone to Nineveh, this wicked city, and he has told them their destruction is coming. And he is seeing Nineveh as a whole, as a people, repent. Right? This is the backwards picture. This isn't what it's supposed to look like. God's people are supposed to lead in repentance. God's people are supposed to reflect his character and lead in mercy. And Jonah doesn't. So, chapter 3 ends with the pagans acting righteously, repenting. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, right? This wasn't just the actions of their voice. They weren't simply crying out loud and rending their garments They were repenting. They were changing from the violence that was in their own hands. They were acting in accordance with their repentance. And God saw it. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Well, this makes Jonah furious. And so he prays. And he complains to God. And he said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said would happen when I was in my own country? And this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
Why did he make haste to flee to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. He had seen it. He had seen God be gracious and merciful to northern Israel. He knew he was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That steadfast love is God's covenantal, continual love that he shows to his people. He knew who God was. He had seen it displayed in northern Israel. He knew what northern Israel deserved. He knew what Nineveh deserved. And he says that God is a God who relents from disaster. So what's his response? He's angry at God. He's angry with what he did because he knew the gracious, kind, gentle character of God. And so he wants God to kill him again. Right? We're back to where we were when he was telling the pagans to toss him into the sea. He's so angry with what God is doing that he's asking again for his own destruction. And God responds to him. Asks him a question. He says, do you do well to be angry? Right? Do you deserve to be angry at the mercy and the loving kindness and the gentleness and the graciousness of God? So Jonah hightails it up to the edge of the city. And he sits on the bluff overlooking the city. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not all the people repent. Maybe he'll get a little fireworks show. He'll see some sulfur and brimstone rain down on Sodom and, like Sodom and Gomorrah did. And he'll get to see some destruction there. Um, and as he's waiting, God appoints a plant. Giant plant springs up overnight, comes and gives him shade from the hot sun. Jonah's a man full of emotions here. Uh, it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Right? Jonah doesn't do anything small. Kill me, super glad. Kill me, super glad. Right? We see that. Kill me as they throw him into the water. Super glad. Fish vomits him out of the land. He prays to God. Kill me, God. You're being merciful to this people I don't want you to be merciful for. I'm afraid you'll take the goodness and loving kindness that displayed to Israel and it'll go to Nineveh. Right? Israel doesn't deserve God's mercy. Nineveh didn't deserve God's mercy. Nineveh's getting God's mercy. Maybe he's going to cast off his own people. But now he's exceedingly glad because he gets shade from a plant. Next day, God appoints a worm, chews on the base of the vine, then sends the withering winds, and he sends the sun to beat down again, and this plant dies. Jonah's angry again. So Jonah, over this plant, is, uh, it says, so the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, And he asked that he might die. Jonah is ready to die over the fate of this plant. And he tells God, it's better for me to die than to live. And God responds to Jonah again. He says, do you be well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah's incensed. 
Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Right? Jonah is furious that a plant that sprung up over one night and died the next day, he's angry at its destruction. So God looks at him. God responds to him. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. That's an accurate statement of what took place here. Plant popped up. Jonah did nothing. He just benefited from it. And plant died. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Right? I, I got a seven-year-old. He knew his right from his left pretty darn well by five, definitely by six, maybe at four. He didn't know it. Right? Scriptures tell us in the city of Nineveh, there's 120,000 infants, children who don't know their right hand from their left. These are infants who the Lord knows. He knows the hairs on their head. He caused them to come into being. They are, though tied to Nineveh, right? They're covenantally tied to the city of Nineveh. And if Nineveh is destroyed... 120,000 infants will be destroyed. And the guilt of Nineveh is on their heads. But, but they weren't pulling people around with fish hooks. They weren't putting people on spikes. They weren't chopping off the heads and the toes and the fingers of their enemies. They weren't torturing women and children. They were nursing babes. They were toddling around their houses. They were known by the Lord and cared for by the Lord. And they had been cared for him every day of their existence. The Lord had fed them. The Lord had seen them trained. The Lord had seen them cared for. And Jonah is ready to see them destroyed. So Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, right? In the hierarchy of beings, plants are down here. An animal has, is, right, even we see that, an animal is more uh, sacred than a plant, right? If you, you might feel no problem whacking at the blackberries, but not many of you are going to go whack at a sheep. Um, and then you have people. The animals get brought in. Uh, it's ironic. The animals repent. Animals get saved. Uh, this is where the book of Jonah ends. Right? It doesn't tell us that Jonah saw his wickedness. It doesn't show us that Jonah turned and repented. In this story, Jonah, the prophet of God, acts in an ungodly way. And the pagans accurately reflect God's will and God's work again and again. Uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. 
but somebody who had intimate knowledge of what took place. He knew Jonah's prayers in his head from the belly of the fish. I think Jonah probably wrote the book uh, on there, but our God is able to tell you what happened uh, in Jonah's mind or any of the other prophets later on. So we don't know who wrote it. Uh, But what we do see on display is God's judgment. We see God's great mercy to sinful, evil people. We see his gentleness in dealing with them. We see that he provides a way of repentance. He provides preaching that can give life to the Ninevites here, cause them to repent. And we see that God works through covenantal structures. Right? We see that in the people in the boat. We see that in all of Nineveh repenting. We see that even in the cattle getting saved here. Uh, we serve a gracious and long-suffering God. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah. Uh, Lord, in our upside-down, messed-up world uh, where we see irony all around, we, we see in your word that it sometimes, too, is ironic Uh, that you sometimes use pagans to teach us how it is that we are to live before you. Lord, would you you open our eyes to your graciousness graciousness and your mercy to those around us? Uh, Would you give us hearts that love you and your people and are willing to serve and to sacrifice ourselves for their good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.